We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of our ancestors, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning. And we trust that you have kept your covenant and are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As part of my religious studies minor in college, I took a class called Introduction to Buddhism. And on the first day of that class, several of us, the really industrious ones, were in the room early. And this guy came in and sat down on the front row. And almost as soon as he sat down, he started loudly talking about things he'd heard about this class. I heard this class is so boring, he said. And I heard the teachers aren't very good. And after each critical thing he said, he sort of looked around the room like he was waiting for us to agree with him. You know who this is, right? The, the person who says something provocative and then looks around for agreement, right? Right? I remember sharing weird glances with some of the other students in the class wondering what was going on with this guy. Something was off. And that's when he theatrically looked at his watch and said, where the heck is this guy? And then stood up and revealed that he himself was the teacher of the class. Now, technically, he was the teacher's assistant. The real life teacher was a actual Buddhist nun. She was about four feet tall, uh, dressed in an orange robe every day. And I will never forget her. (laughs) I'll never forget some things about Buddhism either. For instance, there's no such thing as good karma and bad karma. All karma is bad, and the Buddhist life is about trying to get rid of it. That's when you can stop being reincarnated, when you've gotten rid of all your karma. But what has really stuck with me about this class all these years later was the weird behavior of that TA. I can picture him so clearly in my mind, black ponytail pulled back. He had clearly been trying to get us to badmouth the class or the teachers in some way so that he could then stand up and say, aha, like one of the characters in Mission Impossible ripping off their mask. I got you. You said the teacher wasn't very good and I was the teacher all along. He wanted us, for some reason, to have to interact with somebody that we had just insulted. Have you ever had this Feeling it's always happening in sitcoms and in movies. Somebody will overhear the terribly insulting thing that someone else said, but then it'll it'll turn out that they're the they're the one who has the last ticket to the theater. I think that's the Frasier episode. Uh, Oh, so now you want my help? They'll say. I feel like every third episode of Seinfeld was like this. George would mortally insult somebody and then realize that he needed something from them. Remember the one where he and Jerry have to uh, go ask for help from his ex-girlfriend whom he put in the mental institution? (laughs) But this happens in the real world too. You'll have a terrible interaction with somebody, maybe end up insulting them, and then realize that you have to ask them for something. Or more likely, it's just all internal for you, right? 
the person that you'd hate to seem needy in front of is the only one who can meet your need. The last person you would ever want to ask for help is the one person who can actually help you. This is a terrible feeling. And it is the feeling that the sinful Israelites have in Jeremiah when they come to God for help. But before we get there, the classic example of this feeling isn't from my introduction to Buddhism class or from Fraser or Seinfeld. It's actually from the Bible. It's what Joseph's brothers felt. Remember, when they come to the Egyptian administrator who could help them and they realize that it's actually the brother that they sold into slavery years before. You remember that story, right? Joseph is the favored younger son of Jacob, who, as we learned about last week, really should have known better than to play favorites. But Joseph is the favorite. He got the coat of many colors. He had these prophetic dreams in which he was the most important brother and saw all his older brothers kneeling down to him. And of course, Joseph didn't feel any compunction about sharing these dreams with his brothers. And finally, having had enough, the brothers resolved to kill Joseph. But at the last minute, they decide, no, actually not to kill him, but to sell him into slavery instead. And then, through a pretty elaborate series of circumstances, which you can read about in the last 10 chapters of Genesis, Joseph rises through the levels of power in Pharaoh's palace until when there's a famine in the land and Joseph's brothers have to come and beg for help. It turns out that Joseph is the one to whom they have to beg. The one they wronged so horrifically is now the only one who can help them. This is the kind of situation we see in a poetic form in our reading this morning from Jeremiah. Israel is finding itself asking God for help while in the same breath acknowledging that by their sin it is him whom they have offended. Listen to some of these words. Although our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake. Our apostasies indeed are many, and we have sinned against you. Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us. We are called by your name. Do not forsake us. The people admit that they have, quote, loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet, and they know what they deserve. Therefore, they say, the Lord does not accept them, referring poetically to themselves. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. But the people have a problem, a big problem. They're under threat from Babylon and they need help. And they don't just need a little help, they need a lot. They know it's going to take some serious intervention and that no minor gods are going to be able to get the job done. Can any idols of the nations bring rain, they say? Or can the heavens give showers? This is Hilarious, right? They'd love to turn to some other God. They've terribly offended the God they have. They wish that some idol could help them. But they know that these other gods of the nations aren't nearly powerful enough. They know the identity of the only one who can save them. Is it not you, 
O Lord our God, they say. We set our hope on you, for it is you who do all this. And so it is that God's people find themselves playing the role of George Costanza. The very God they've offended by their unfaithfulness and sin is the God they have to beg to save them. The same idea, in fact, is at play in the story that Jesus tells in our gospel lesson of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The first who thanks the Lord that he's not like other people. And the second who would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It is the tax collector who goes home justified, having called out for mercy to the very God whose holiness he has offended. That's why he's a sinner, right? He's offended God. And yet he knows that this is the same God to whom he must turn for help. (coughs) The God who he has sinned against is also the source of his justification. And so we come once again to the two ways that God speaks into the world. First, out of his holiness, God speaks the law. He speaks it to Adam and Eve in the garden. Thou shalt not eat of that tree. Be fruitful and multiply. He speaks it to Moses on Mount Sinai, carving it into stone tablets for him to bring to the people. Honor your father and mother. Have no other gods but me. He speaks it through his prophets, reminding the people of the difference between the life they're living and the life they've been called to live. This first word of God causes confession. And repentance. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, cry the people in Jeremiah, the iniquity of our ancestors, for we have sinned against you. The tax collector in Jesus' story can't even look up to heaven. He is so aware of his sin. And we, all these years later, will say, Almighty God, we acknowledge and repent of our many sins and offenses. The first word of God, spoken from his holiness, has done its work. But then, into that moment, God speaks his second word. And in truth, in that moment, there is no one else who can speak. St. Paul says in Romans 3 that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Every mouth is stopped. That's how holy the holiness of the law is. Every mouth is stopped except one. His law has done its accusing work and now God is ready to speak again. And now God speaks the gospel. When Joseph's brothers cower before him, knowing that they've ruined everything, that there's no way the same man whom they sold into slavery is going to help them now, what happens? Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, says Genesis, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He comforted them. He comforted those who had sinned against him. Joseph speaks a word of comfort into a moment of fear. And though Joseph acknowledges that he's not God, he does speak to his brothers in a typological way. He speaks here like God speaks. A word of comfort in a moment of fear. That's what the gospel does. It's why we say what we call the comfortable words right after we confess our sins. Our fear has been washed away by this second and final word of God, a word of comfort for sinners. The same God who is too holy for us is the only one holy enough to save us. The same God who is too holy for us is the only one holy enough to save us. He is holy, but he didn't stay the kind of removed that that holiness would seem to require. The very holiness that should have led God to turn his back on us, instead led God to send his son to us, Jesus Christ, for us, to live for us, to die for us, to have God's back turned on him, for us, for you. The same holiness that made us sinners by comparison is the only holiness holy enough to bear the sin of the world and still rise three days later. This is a word of comfort for sinners. Though you are not holy, there is one holy enough for you. You are one of God's children. Hear and agree with the truth of the words of Jeremiah. I acknowledge my wickedness, O Lord, the iniquity of my ancestors, for I have sinned against you. And then, like Jesus' tax collector, call out to that same Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do not spurn me for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with me. This is the good news for God's children. He is faithful. He will not break his covenant with you. That covenant has been sealed in the blood of Christ and is secure forever. You, a sinner, acknowledging your wickedness, are now, in Jesus, no longer wicked. A miracle has happened. Your wickedness was laid on Jesus' shoulders and his righteousness has been laid on yours. Your sin credited to him, his goodness credited to you. God has kept his covenant. Atonement has been made, and you are a beloved child 
of God. The Holy One has acted. The Holy One has spoken. And you are saved. Amen.